All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest today, Brandon Bartnick. Brandon is Vice President and General Manager at Edison Manufacturing and Engineering, which is a low-volume contract manufacturing partner focused on capital light assembly of complex mobility and energy products. Brandon also hosts the Future of Mobility and Capital Light Assembly podcast. So Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing at Edison. Sure. So I'm a mechanical engineer by background, started my career at Boeing in process engineering and production engineering, then got into the engineering services space and transitioned into business development and marketing for a large German engineering services company called FEV, essentially working to help companies create the next generation products that are helping to transform the mobility industry. So improved internal combustion engines and drivetrains and electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cells and autonomous vehicles and all those types of things. I then transitioned to Edison, which I now am leading this organization last year and essentially saw, so Edison, we'll talk about what we do and why we do it in this capital light manufacturing manner. But essentially through my work at FEV, working with the companies, trying to transform this dynamic mobility ecosystem, I saw that low volume production was a challenge for a wide range of companies from startups to some of the biggest companies in the world. And that transition from developing new technology and creating prototypes and proof of concepts to then scaling that into production in a commercially viable manner is a filter that takes a lot of companies out and is also a key enabler to actually make that technology and enable that to make the impact that is intended by the companies that are producing it. So I saw this edit, this company at Edison, which culture fit very nicely with what I wanted to do. The service that we're providing fits nicely with kind of the things that are important to me. And that's how I got where I am now. So what exactly is the complex mobility and energy products that you guys are doing? So it's a wide range. A lot of the work is in the new technology that's transforming the transportation ecosystem. So it's supporting companies that are developing electric vehicles is a lot of it. So building battery packs and things that go along with battery packs or electric drive. Also integration of electrified propulsion systems into vehicles. We're doing work on hydrogen fuel cells for the energy storage. And along with the challenges that come with introducing these lower emission vehicles into the marketplace, we're seeing infrastructure is a huge question and the ability to actually supply the energy that can be used to charge these new vehicles in the place and at the time that you needed them. So we're supporting with the building of microgrid battery storage and hydrogen fuel cell, high voltage storage areas. And then the third main area we're supporting currently in this new technology space is autonomous vehicles. So the shift as automated driving is taking off, there's need to transform conventional vehicles with 
new sensors and computing power and communication pathways on the vehicle. And we're supporting our customers to build those vehicles so that they can deploy them in the marketplace. So how common are they? You see them delivering pizzas and stuff, but other than that, where are we in that process of actually having the self-driving vehicle? It's still early. And so the, and there's a few different flavors. So the last mile delivery, I think what you're alluding to here is taking off in certain areas. You're also seeing robo taxis of sorts growing in popularity in very specific geographic areas. So it's Southern US and areas like in Arizona, in kind of the areas where it's easier and there's not as challenging of weather, but it's small kind of pilot programs. The areas that we're primarily supporting are more in the commercial logistics space and middle mile long haul delivery where, yeah, it's a handful of vehicles on the road right now, maybe a couple dozen vehicles. And that's part of the reason it's small scale right now. Everyone thinks it's going to scale up. The volumes and time frame are uncertain. It's not sure if this is six, 12, 18 months, not, but it's a, we're not sure if it's a couple years or the end of the decade before autonomous vehicles are, scale, are rolling out at scale. And so that's why for these companies that are trying to deploy this technology, the approach that we take is capital light assembly approach is important because it allows them to build the product that they need to without deploying a ton of capital up front and giving them, digging themselves in such a financial hole that they're depending on a very clear volume and timeline for getting these products on the road, which there just isn't that level of certainty in the market right now. So what exactly is Capital Light Assembly and what are some of the benefits of it? Yeah. So maybe thinking about the alternative, and I think the, the guests that you talked to in the past, like the traditional manufacturing is often a, what we call like a capital heavy approach, where if you picture in your mind, a manufacturing plant, you're probably picturing a lot of heavy automation, robotics, that and that approach is excellent for a lot of things, maybe even the vast majority of things that are manufactured. You're able to move quickly, lower labor costs. You're able to have very fine-tuned quality control through the automation here. And it's great for building hundreds of thousands, maybe 50,000, maybe a million of something per year. We, so we serve on the other side of the equation. So we, we look at these products like I'm talking about in the autonomous vehicle space that Maybe you're talking dozens, hundreds, low thousands of something per year, and you're talking a high degree of uncertainty often, whether that's uncertainty in the design that's changing in the marketplace, like I talked about in the autonomous vehicle space, or otherwise in these areas where you need to be able to move quickly and with agility. And so the capital light approach that refers to an approach of philosophy around manufacturing that minimizing the minimizes the upfront capital expenditure. Not that we're afraid of spending money there and investing in fixtures and automation as it makes sense, but wherever possible, we try to lean towards manually driven processes that are then tightly controlled through process and intentional strategic deployment of technology. And what the end result there is, it's less efficient, probably marginally to produce on a unit basis, but we're allowing our customers to get into manufacturing with a much lower yeah, initial hurdle, much lower initial capital expenditure, which then allows them to scale over time. Once you start building, if you, buy, if you build a few hundred of something, you can learn more about what that product's going to be, what the market is going to be, and when it's going to take off. And then that allows this milestone-based decision-making so that they can deploy capital in a less risky manner and with more clear. And so we 
basically that's the objective or the need for the support. And ultimately what goes into doing that well is the ability to design and execute on a manually driven process that is very tightly controlled. Now, at the beginning, when you were sharing your background, you mentioned that this was an area that was a passion for you. So what led you, what lights you up about what you're doing? Yeah, ultimately it's in the future mobility podcast that I, I run is built around exploring safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation. And basically, and that, that's something that means a lot to me. It's the question of how do we move people and goods in a way that is sustainable on many levels? So I'm talking from an environmental perspective, but also that we can build meaningful businesses around this and that we can serve our people. And ultimately the goal isn't to introduce new technology and exciting technology, but to actually serve the needs of our community in a way that is sustainable and it's safe and we're not injuring and killing people on the roads essentially. So the pursuit of making the transportation ecosystem more effective is something that personally means a lot to me. I'll pair that with, I also see like this end goal of what we're doing is very important. The maybe the how and why is even more important of finding a workplace where I enjoy to go and my employees enjoy to come and I'm serving customers in a way that's meaningful and that we're providing value, serving our community, all that. So it's those two things, friendly tug of war of the product and what we're doing, very meaningful, safe, sustainable transportation ecosystem, but also doing it in a way that is additive and fulfilling for myself and our team. Those are the things that really excite me. And I think that that's such an important part in conversation for people listening to the podcast to pay attention to the mission of your organization and be willing to make changes and be willing to fail if things don't work right. Because it's a really exciting time, but there's such a commitment to being part of something that, like you just said, you don't know if it's going to be a couple of years or a couple of decades before we get fully integrated with the new technology. But it's always interesting to hear you know, what, what lights people up. And mm-hmm. I think that people should pay attention to that because they want to be part of something that's bigger than they are. And transportation certainly is. What do you think are some of the situations that there are the greatest needs for this capital light approach to production? So there are two main, two main areas. So one is startups who are introducing, like there's a whole host of technology startups who are trying to introduce new technology. And as I mentioned, the ability to actually build these things in a commercially viable way is critical if they're actually going to make the impact they're trying to make. And these, for the most part, are technology companies, not manufacturing companies. And so we provide a ton of value coming in and working with these companies to establish the manufacturing strategy and then ultimately to execute on that strategy as they scale in an intelligent way so that they're deploying this limited capital, whether it's venture ca- bench or venture-backed capital or otherwise, in an intelligent manner. The other piece is actually something that I didn't necessarily expect when I about a year ago, but established companies, and we're working with some of the biggest companies in the world, global automotive OEM and industrial companies, this shift into the next form of mobility and transportation will be critical for these companies to have strategic and financial success a decade from now. For the most part, they're not super financially attractive right now. There isn't a huge market. For, yeah, some EV type or electric vehicle, it's growing in some markets, but a lot of the markets are just, we're talking hundreds of, if you're looking at like work trucks or like an industrial 
vehicles, forklifts, or even some of these infrastructure products. They're very low scale right now. And not that's the scale that these companies are typically built to execute on. And automotive OEMs used to making millions of vehicles per year, not hundreds right. or thousands. So we found that we tend to provide a ton of, we're an enabler for these companies to go and in a commercially viable way, enter these markets, try to grab market share while there's an opportunity and position themselves for success down the line without requiring that huge capital expenditure. And also the flip side of that, which they all, they have other products, they have the cash cows that they need to continue to build. And we're actually surprisingly finding that as the volumes for those decline and they right now, right now they have highly automated production for certain products because they're making a ton of them. As those volumes are going to decline, this capital light manually driven process becomes attractive actually on the back end and the life cycle maintenance for those products as well. But also seems that it would make it easier for tweaking these products because if you only have a hundred vehicles versus a uh, ten thousand vehicles and you need to make a change in the technology or one of the pieces or parts there to make it more effective, it seems that would be more flexible as far as that goes too. Is that what they're finding? Yes, exactly. So what do you think that it takes to successfully execute in this space? So one of the big challenges is how do you actually build quality into the, an approach like this? And we fortunately have experience in this space, but you have to be much more intentional about the design of the process and the way in which you train and are employing or deploying your people, which are the main resources to build these. So you're not replying, you're not relying on a very repeatable robotic arm to, to build many of these things. We're replying on humans to build this with hopefully that are trained and bought into the system. Also that have very clear instructions and manufacturing approach, approaches that have quality built into those processes. So the ability to look at a, look at this design and intentional manufacturing process that has process interlocks and pokey oaks and things that don't allow manual errors to take place and to continue to grow throughout the process is one of the critical pieces. And are you, for the people that you're hiring, do they have to come in with a specific skill set as far as an engineering background? Or do you sometimes look for the a good cultural fit and then teach them the skills they need? It's both. So culture, cultural fit is critical across the board. And that will continue to be as we're executing the early builds for a program. And yeah, it's a lot of engineering minded individuals and experienced individuals who are leading that, but really the magic is in the ability to then transform that expertise into a process that then can be executed by a skilled technician, someone who is familiar with executing builds in a repeatable way, but might not be the expert on the product. And so the kind of the, one of the key enablers for us to execute in this space is the ability to put together work instructions and a manufacturing execution system that enables people who are maybe less technically savvy on the, on the technology itself to be able to execute these builds in a repeatable way. And company culture is one thing that we talk a lot about on this show, because I believe in the numbers show it that when you get the culture right, as long as you're paying a marketable wage, 
money is not the be all end all that people ascribe it to be. It's just something that you have to get the culture right. And I know that you have done a great job over there at Edison as far as your culture and your focus on living out the core values of your company. So talk to us a little bit about that. What are your values? How did you come up with them? And how does that focus turn out as far as your employees? Yeah, and this actually goes even a layer beyond Edison. So we're not a standalone company. We have a sister company, PJ Wallbank Springs, which is a transmission component supplier that's been around for 40 years. And actually, the and we're part of a holding company. And the thing, one of the things that really drew me to Edison, in addition to what I mentioned before, was that there is a clear vision for this organization that starts with, we want to have a positive impact on society in a certain way. And we want to serve our people and our customers and our community in a certain way. And we have key practices and core values that have been defined for, okay, here's how we do it. Here's how, what we're looking for in our team, what's required from our team. And that's super powerful for me as a North star and make sure that our teams align. And this core values piece is part of, yeah, it's daily discussion for us of how we make sure that we're maintaining that as we grow and that we're actually living out the value. So the way our values have been defined, it's one take ownership to either win or learn three golden rule, treat others as you'd like to be treated and four challenge the status quo. So we're looking, the type of work that we're doing is complex. We're agile. We are moving quickly. We're relying on our people to, to execute. That requires a deep ownership of someone who's willing to come in and really own what they're doing and take responsibility outside of the specific roles that have been defined, buy into the team and be part of this culture, always be challenging the status quo, looking for ways to improve things, learning from every opportunity, and ultimately just being a good person, essentially, is the way that we think about this. And we've, one of the best proof of this we had is we try to tell this story and we try to be clear about the values. And one of our customers recently remarked that working with Edison, he said, yeah, it's great that you guys are sharing this because from the other side of the customer, it's very clear that the culture is on point and is doing what you guys expect to, which obviously that means a ton because we're it's great when within our four walls, we have a great alignment, but it's really the end result here is that we're trying to serve our customers in the best way. And it's great when they can see that as well. So when it comes to bringing on the right people, because for the culture that you have there, it sounds like it's a safe culture for people to take initiative and either win or learn, and then giving people the opportunity to fail, because you know that's not always going to be breaking the rules. But what are some of the ways that you determine that somebody's a good fit for your organization? Yeah, it's a great question. So we have traits, obviously, we're looking for and curiosity, humility is huge, a desire to continue to learn. And we can define what we're looking for in these people with that. And then how do you actually go about evaluating and trying to figure out where I think that's where your question is, right? And we're not quick to hire. We have long kind of relationship built up approach for the most part, where we have prolonged discussions with individuals. And we're trying to, we walk through the history of how, not only what has happened, but how people are processing and thinking about and learning about the experiences that they've had in their career thus far. Also, one of the things which I hadn't been exposed to before, but we incorporate a test drive into our evaluation and decision-making process, which is essentially where 
evaluating or we're defining real world scenarios that this individual is going to experience in their role and trying to have a discussion around how they approach it and have them do the work of, Hey, here's some of the work that's required. Please come out and we'll have a discussion and kind of report out and presentation on what goes into that. And that serves both sides. So one, it allows the candidate to see, Hey, here's what the work actually looks like. Is this something that excites me or is this something that seems like, yeah, that I dread doing. And it also allows us to see the competency, but also more, more than that, kind of the way the individual thinks about and approaches a task like that. And whether it's something that they're eager to go at and learn and dig into the things where they have blind spots in their expertise, or if not, and maybe it's not the right fit. Yeah. I think I look at when my husband joined this new company last year, it was like eight interviews and six hours of personality tests because they wanted to make sure that they bring the right people on. And he's, it, he's just so happy. I think sometimes when there's an open position, people just want to get a body in there to fill space. But as I say, in a lot of my programs and clients that I work with, you need to hire more slowly and fire more quickly than you think you need to. And just taking the time to make absolutely sure to give them, show them parts of the job, have those conversations because the person's going to show them their full selves in the course of those conversations where you're going to be able to say, okay, there's only so many, so much time that you can stretch the truth of what you do. And now it's, okay, this is who we want to hire or yeah, we're going to take a pass. What would you say is it, how long does it normally take you to bring someone on by the time you have all these conversations and stuff? Yeah, that's a good, great question. And there's not a one size fits all. And I think one of the key enablers for this is building relationships and recruiting. And I'll throw quotes around it because I don't know if I necessarily think about it, but relationship building before we need the position is part of one of the core practices that allows us, right? So it can't be that you suddenly have a business need pop up and you need to hurry up and fill a position in a month. Like no trying to think, okay, a year from now, these are the type of roles that we're going to likely need in the organization as we grow. Let's try to build up a network and think about who are the right people who might be a fit there so that we're not as time constrained. And it's, it doesn't, it's not perfect for every position, right? Because for example, a director we're going to bring on maybe thinks differently about their career than a machine operator who, sure. and yeah. So this, it's not a one size fits all. And we rely heavily on, we have a chief people officer between the two entities who Tracy does an incredible job leading and driving this process and thinking about the way in which we're trying to proactively source the talent that we're going to need and the resources that we're going to need so that we're not, because it's a luxury to be able to pick and choose and find the right person. And we're trying to enable ourselves to have the time and the space to do that. Yeah. And just that forward thinking and hiring based on what you believe the future is going to be. That's such a great practice. And I know the other thing that you really focus on is that customer-centric approach in your business. So talk a little bit about that. We already know that if you treat your employees well, they're going to treat your customers well. What is that extra magic that you do to take care of your customers? Yeah. And the, I guess the key thing is realizing at first, like, the reason we are in business is to enable our customers and to, I mentioned at the beginning that our customers for the most part are solving meaningful, challenging problems in the transportation ecosystem. 
we are someone who is a service and support for them and serving them. We should treat that accordingly, right? So it, it's not thinking about, obviously we have our own best interest to think about, and we need to make sure that we have financial returns that are in line and we're not taking unreasonable risk and that we're serving our own people first and foremost. But if we are intentional and we realize that ultimately the reason that we're in business is serving our customers and providing the service work, we found that especially given the complexity of the work that we're often doing, working hand in hand with our customers is really the only way to do this in a way that is repeatable and sustainable all the way around. There's going to be issues that come up throughout the type of builds that we're working on. There's going to be deviations from the contract that were set up up front and like having a zero sum mentality and playing tug of war. Like we strongly believe it doesn't work. We need to find the customers who are thinking like us, who are thinking long-term or aren't who are willing to get in the same boat with us and row together. And that gives us the flexibility to define production approaches that are optimal for the product that meet at hand. And then also to be able to adjust to the needs that come up and the challenges that inevitably come up throughout these projects. Boy, this is, it, 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 there's so many things we could just talk about this forever because right. it's such an interesting space. But as we're starting to get to the end of our time together, what would you be your best piece of advice for somebody when it comes to creating that company culture and that customer centric culture that you have there? What can somebody do? Yeah, I don't know how well positioned I am necessarily to offer advice out of the gate, but I guess one of the things I think about a lot is just being clear about what we're doing, sure, but more importantly, why and how we're doing it. And having that front and center as the kind of the cornerstone and then also communicating that both internally and externally on a more frequent basis than we think it, we probably need to, because it's it's great if I'm here and our leadership team is here and we're aligned and we have our thoughts in mind. That's the minimal threshold, but it's so much more powerful if our entire team understands the vision so that they can then buy into it. So it's just the making sure that we're going through that process of getting things out of our head and onto paper in a way that makes sense. And then very clearly and frequently communicating that with us within the team and not just as an outbound communication, but as a exchange and dialogue with the team members to make sure that we're all aligned and we're on the same way. Yep. Yep. There's way too many times that we think that we over communicate and we don't communicate nearly enough. That <laughs> emphasis on just that constant communication is, is definitely needed. So if somebody did want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I think LinkedIn's often the easiest way to find me. So it's Brandon Bartnick, my my name here. Yeah, feel free to connect, shoot me a message there and we can find some time and chat. I'd love to hear. I think you have very, I don't know, it's exciting aligned with the way that we, and I tend to think about a business lease of the way you've built this network and the way that you're thinking about building culture. So I think anyone who's listening to this is likely relatively aligned. So I'd love to chat. Okay. Awesome. Brandon, again, I want to thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Yep. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. 
You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.